um, you've had some amazing stagecraft uh, this morning with you see what he does when he wants to transition he'll give the mic to someone else and then he'll pretend that he's not a worship leader anymore there's so much to learn there good morning everyone my name's uh, Josh and uh, I get to to uh, work here at Cornerstone which is an immense privilege and um, uh, we're sort of in between uh, sections of our big it's good that our elder uh, Peter knows what we've been talking about a lot this year the theme of exile um, so we're anticipating moving into a sort of mini uh, series on the book of of first Peter about exile uh, but we have found in the sort of free hits that we've had in between that it's something that keeps coming up. Um, this morning I'm preaching from a passage that's in the lectionary and again it's a strong feature so it, it's nice to know that um, it's not just us uh, choosing to look at this. It, it seems like there's confirmations uh, from God that we're on the right track by looking at this in this time. And um, as I uh, had a think about where I needed to go this morning, I realised that I needed uh, a particular photo uh, as a sort of touchstone for the point of my message. And um, I knew, um, sort of from a vague memory of seeing something like it on the internet before, that there would be a stock photo for my needs. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with stock photos, but there are, I guess, small businesses out there that take a heap of uh, sort of photos that they imagine someone in the corporate world might need sometime and they sort of stage them and uh, then they charge you money to be able to use one of their photos. And it's a real, uh, it's a, there's a rich uh, sort of treasure trove of, of, of photos when you go looking for a particular photo. So um, I had to weed through um, some articles that weren't sort of precise to my needs to find the one um, that I needed. Uh, this first one here, uh, it's a pretty pretty standard sort of stock photo. That woman there wants to um, engage in a business deal with you. I think she might also want to steal your soul, judging by the look on her face and the fact that she's offering her left hand. This one... This guy's life has been revolutionised. There's new levels of freedom for him since he began to work from home. Uh, his electronics costs and dry cleaning costs have gone up slightly, but there's nothing like the freedom of lying down on the beach in a suit with your laptop. Um, this one, tr trumpet's a notoriously difficult instrument to learn. Uh, she's starting right at the first level there where you uh, get taught about the orientation of the instrument to play it. You can see the watermarks there. People would pay good money for that photo. I didn't. That's why you can still see the watermarks there. Uh, this one, well the less said about that one the better really. I, I'm trying to imagine the situation in which someone would pay money for that photo. <laughs> this moment, yeah. Well, I didn't pay. I, didn't pay. I just stole that, actually. <laughs> There's no watermarks because I, I stole that photo. Maybe, Chris, you work in the agricultural sector. You could think of an application. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, but this is the one that I was after. Businessman shouts at phone. 
Um, and uh, the reason I needed businessman shouts at phone this morning is he's actually a financial advisor and he's the financial advisor of a significant figure from the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment to try and guess which figure from the Old Testament. Um, but we'll come back to that picture because it's going to be, there's a deep theological truth rooted in that one. Before we get there though, we're going to have a talk about the highlight of all church picnics, which is the three-legged race. Who's been in a three-legged race? Anyone under 15 been in a three-legged race? Have you been in a three-legged race before, Iggy? No? You have, Michael? Yeah. You must have been to a few church picnics. Good stuff. So the mystery person whose financial advisor is unhappy is this guy. Any, any guesses who this might be? Iggy? Yeah, good, good guess. Um, but wrong. Sorry. Uh, he, he looks like he could be Ethiopian, uh, but that's good guess, uh, Pastor Daniel. Um, but there's a bit of a giveaway, actually, in the thing that's around his neck. Micah. Your cousin. My cousin. Could be my cousin. It's um, someone who we've talked about a bit this year. It's, uh, it's Jeremiah. So that is an oxen's yoke around his neck. And that uh, is a part of a little sort of prophetic, dramatic piece uh, that Jeremiah did that we don't have a lot of time to go into this morning. But this is the man in question. His mates called him Good Time Jezza because he was the life of the party. He'd rock up <laughs> to parties with oxen yokes around his neck. He was famous uh, for his woes. Uh, woe to Jerusalem, you know that number? It always brings the house down. Um, famous for verses like this. This comes from uh, Jeremiah 4 where he said, This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined and the heavens above grow dark. Yep, good times. Um, poor old Jeremiah, yeah. So he was, he was all about catastrophes. When I saw uh, the catastrophe that was awaiting Jerusalem, when I saw that this was the reading for this morning, I thought, well, that's fitting, given the week that has been, because um, there's been a bit of talk about catastrophes this week, hasn't there? You're thinking, did he just compare Jeremiah and Greta Thunberg? I didn't, you did. How dare you? Now, that's a little joke if you've been watching the news. Anyway, uh, Jeremiah, he is a man who foresaw the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. And he sort of, he gave people warnings. He said, listen, something bad is going to happen to God's holy city, this city that is the centre of our life as a community. Um, it's going to be desolate soon. There's going to be great destruction. And uh, we, as a people, are going to be carried off into exile. And um, it's a pretty grim message, um, but maybe even grimmer than um, what we can imagine. So there's a picture there of the siege of Jerusalem, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's forces sort of lay siege to Jerusalem for an extended period of time before the city eventually fell. And uh, we know the story that many of the Jews were carried off to a foreign land. 
um, to live in exile, to live in Babylon. Um, and we might kind of think, well, that's unfortunate. Uh, would it be something akin to having to move to Ipswich or something like that? No, it's much worse than having to move to Ipswich. Uh, because for God's people, Jerusalem was more than just a piece of real estate. And I'm sorry about the Ipswich joke. I actually love Ipswich. Um, but I had to think of a place that you would all laugh at. Uh, so it was more than real estate uh, to God's people. N.T. Wright writes about the significance of the land to the Jews, and he says the land was the source of bread and wine, the place to graze sheep and goats, to grow olives and figs. It was the place where and the means through which God, Yahweh, gave to his covenant people the blessings that he had promised them, which were all summed up in the many-sided and evocative word shalom or peace. The land was the new Eden. It was the garden of God, the garden of Yahweh. It was the home of true humanity. So for Israel to lose their connection with the land was like losing their connection with themselves to a significant degree and losing their connection to God. It was something that seemed to say that the promises of God for them were no longer true. If God said, you will know me, through this land, my blessings will come to you through this land, and all of a sudden they're wrenched away from that by a foreign power. It can seem to say that God isn't in control, that maybe the promises he made were lies. And so it was a deep kind of existential crisis for the occupants of Jerusalem and Judea to be taken away from their land. At the same time, one of the threads that we've picked up time and time again this year is a strange kind of hope breaks in through the message of Jeremiah. So he says you are going to be taken away from the land that God has given you um, and the promises that are wrapped up in it. And yet, we've read these words multiple times this year and I'm going to read them again because they're great. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah prophesying here. He says, build houses and settle down in that foreign land. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And so it seems like God is saying to his people through Jeremiah, hang on a second, I'm still doing something here. It may seem to you like the promises are crumbling It may seem to you, perhaps even like I don't care about you, to let this terrible thing happen to you, for you to be wrenched away from the land that is the source of your life, from your inheritance and the inheritance of your children and grandchildren, to be wrenched away from the temple where you worship me. Disaster. And yet, I'm doing something. In Babylon... 
the place that probably represents a kind of nightmare for you as my people. I want you to settle down. I want you to get on with life in that place. Which, of course, brings us to church picnics. As I was thinking about Jeremiah 29 and the fact that God says to his people, pray for Babylon, because if it prospers, you too will prosper, I naturally thought of church picnics. And let me explain this to you for just a moment. So why was it that Israel or Jerusalem and Judea was wrenched apart the way that they were? Why? Did God let this terrible travesty come upon them? Jeremiah speaks to this in chapter 5 here. He says of his people, and this is the words of God coming through the prophet Jeremiah, they have become rich and powerful. Their evil deeds have no limit, they do not seek justice, they do not promote the case of the fatherless, they do not defend the just cause of the poor. God talks about his people through Jeremiah as stubborn and rebellious and he says, you haven't lived up to the call that I've put upon you as a nation. The idea of having your own land was that you could be a light to the world, that the nations around you could see something of who I am because of the way that you contended for the fatherless, because of the way that you defended the just cause of the poor. And that's not what is happening here. And so the three-legged race. You see, the thing about God, it can be confronting to read about those instances where he seems to be punishing his people. But in the scripture, the punishment of God is always about bringing his people back to their true purpose. One of the pictures that comes through in scripture for God's people is that of a city on a hill. And that's something like what God's people were supposed to be in the Old Testament, a light to the nations around them. That the nations around them could look to Israel and see that there was something different going on with them. And that would be an arrow that pointed to God that said, the God of the universe is about these things. is about truth, justice, peace, God cares. The problem with the city on a hill image, the set apart image, is that if we occupy that space as God's people, we can begin, if we're mistaken in the way that we think through it, to get the idea that God's, being God's people is about a privileged position, that it's purely about being different or being better for the sake of being different or better. And so Jesus picks up on that language in the New Testament. He says, yeah, you are to be like 
a city on a hill. People should be able to see you from a long way off. You should be a place of refuge. And maybe there is something kind of privileged about sitting on top of the hill there. But it's not the only metaphor that Jesus uses for what his people should be like. The other, and Graham's mentioned this multiple times this year, is the kind of language that we uh, associate with being yeast through dough. So the idea that God's people are dispersed through all of humanity, all of society, all of culture, and having an influence. They're not just up there separate on a hill. They're a part of what's happening in the world. Why is this like a three-legged race? Well, I've got little kids at the moment who are super competitive, Junie and Iggy, and one of the things that uh, they will do is um, Iggy will set Junie up to have a competition at something that he knows he's going to win. It's annoying, isn't it, Junie, when Iggy doesn't let you win? Super annoying. And um, so, you know that thing kids do where they say, I'll race you to the other side of the yard, but they've started running already. <laughs> yeah. Not particularly just, but that's uh, human psychology. And um, Jeannie just never has a chance, really, to compete with Iggy if he's always setting the ground rules for whatever the competition is. So, as a father, what I do is I bide my time and the next time there's a church picnic and the under sevens have to race in a three-legged race, what do I do? I pick Iggy and I pick Junie and I tie their legs together because I know they might have a chance of both winning but only if Ignatius is willing to see what he's doing as one and the same thing that his sister's doing, right? If you've been in a three-legged race, you know it's all about cooperation. You could be in a three-legged race with Usain Bolt, and he's not going to go any faster than you are able to go with him, right? And if he sprints off at full speed, you're both going to trip over. So in being bound together, there's a unifying of purpose, a unifying of identity, and a, and a sort of forcedness to, to, to cooperate and to have a common goal. And I think this is what God was doing in part when he sent his people into exile. And then he says, you're going to live there, you're going to plant gardens, you're going to develop businesses, you're going to have property there. Your kids are going to get married there. Because you started to think that it was all about privileged real estate. But it was actually about people who I love, who need to know my character, my purpose for them, through you. If I can't get you to do it on top of the hill, you're going to learn to do it in Babylon because I'm going to throw your lots in with the people there. And that is a picture, I think, of what we're trying to get to this year with our Exile series, that God has thrown us in 
to a context where not everyone believes the same thing that we do. Not everyone shares our value. Many of the people we work with, live next door to, play on sports teams with, in bands with, may not even acknowledge that God exists. They may as well be Babylonians. And God is saying, there's a purpose in this. It's your purpose. Because your purpose was never about having a privileged position on top of a hill. Your purpose was about showing people that I love them and that I care for them. And if I have to tie your leg to that of a Babylonian (laughs) or an atheist, whoever it is, I'm going to do that. Because that purpose is the most important thing to me, that my love for people be known, and I choose you. So God's punishment is about bringing you back to your true purpose. Which brings me to this picture. The uh, reading from this morning that comes from the book of Jeremiah is um, chapter... 32 comes from chapter 32, the beginning of it. And uh, Jeremiah is giving his financial advisor a difficult time, as you can tell from the picture of Jeremiah's financial advisor there. So Jeremiah 32 says this, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. I'm reading from the NIV, but it's kind of uh, wordy, so I'll punctuate it with a little bit of commentary. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah there, saying to Jeremiah, Why do you prophesy the way that you do, good time, Jezza. You say, and this is the king to Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says. So this is the kind of prophecy that Jeremiah is giving. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. You can understand Zedekiah might not be thrilled Uh, as the king of Jerusalem, with Jeremiah uh, prophesying that way. And that's why he's got him locked up in there. So at this time, Jeremiah says, and I've skipped to verse 6 here, God spoke to me. He said, your uncle, Hanamel, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Ananoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. And so Jeremiah says, I knew this was God. I predicted that this would happen and it happened. And I bought that field at Ananoth from my cousin for a weight of 17 shekels of silver. So commentators say it's probably pretty cheap, actually, um, for a decent chunk of land. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out on on, on 
on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Barak, son of Neriah. And so it sort of talks about how he did this legally in the presence of witnesses. This is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 14. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. Why did this give his financial advisor a conniption? Well, why would you buy a field in a doomed land? It's kind of funny that Jeremiah's been saying, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, the Babylonians are coming, this land's not going to be ours, we're going to be carried away. And here, Jeremiah hears God say to him, actually, now's a good time to buy property. <laughs> Jeremiah wasn't married, but I can imagine how that conversation would have gone down when he got home if he was. Honey, I just bought some land. You What? You've been talking for years about the fact that Israel is like over and you've gone and bought property. Why? Well, it's all in the final verse of this morning's reading, verse 15. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Jeremiah says, houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Could I get the band up? We're going to do communion. I've run out of time, so I'm going to bring you to my final point here. Interesting that in the same season, God's word through Jeremiah is, you're going to be in exile and you're going to have to be at peace with it. You're going to have to invest in this land that I'm taking you to, so far away from the temple, so far away from the inheritance that you would pass on to your children. And at the same time, he can say, invest, <laughs> invest in property here.
pray that you would form us into a people who follow him in that. Who are willing to be bound to others. Those you love. Those you want to call home. www.homecommunityworld.com